Hey gang, this week's episode is brought to you by our pals at Dollar Shave Club, where you can get the ultimate shave starter set for just five bucks. Yes, five bucks gets you everything you need for an amazing shave. The executive razor, their shave butter, their prep scrub, and of course, <laughs> their post shave do. Yes, just five dollars to get your ultimate shave starter set at dollarshaveclub.com slash good seats. Again, dollarshaveclub.com slash good seats. And now here's our show. Team UFL premier season begins tonight. The Las Vegas Locos and the California Redwoods. Renowned coaches Dennis Green and Jim Fossil have their team stocked with some familiar faces, like Locos quarterback J.P. Lossman, a first-round pick in 2004. Nice job, man. The Redwoods looked at Corey Ross in a powerful running game to make their opening statement. Denny Green's troops are ready for action. Redwoods on three. One, two, three. Redwoods. This is the United Football League from Las Vegas, Nevada. The premier season gets underway tonight. The California Redwoods against the Las Vegas Locos. Hi, everybody. I'm Dave Sims, along with Doug Flutie, the 1984 Heisman Trophy winner, decorated pro for 21 years in pro football. Tonight, we have a new adventure in football. We're going to bring you outdoor football, hardcore football, get tremendous access. And, Doug, you've been around. You know football. This is a high level of football we're going to be presenting you, tonight. We were around this week in training camp. This is real football. Four head, four head coaches in this league, 75 years of NFL experience. The players average three and a half years NFL experience. J.P. Losman throwing a ball down the field, a guy that can throw the deep ball as well as anybody. Players running four three forties, kickers kicking the ball out of the end zone. It was a real practice. It was real football. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available. A curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, everybody, let's do this. How are you? My name is Tim Hanlon, and this is Good Seat Still Available, the curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Oh, my God, it's a brand new year. It's 2020. We welcome you uh, to the proceedings. We hope you had a safe and uh, festive holiday season and uh, that you're geared up for uh, another fun-filled, uh, adventurous uh, year uh, in what we like to sort of delve into, that uh, being things defunct and, and previously domiciled and located uh, in the realm of professional sports. And this week uh, is absolutely no exception as we welcome our guest to the proceedings and our microphones this week, Michael Hugh, who was the uh, original and I think, frankly, only, uh, although it might be a little debatable at the uh, the league's uh, uh, sort of uh, last months, of the United Football League. And yes, you could be forgiven uh, for not knowing or remembering the UFL, the United Football League. No, not the World Football League, not the United States Football League. The UFL, the United Football League, that uh, was uh, a, a brief blip on the pro football landscape. Uh, that kind of sort of thumfered uh, along for for a couple of years, 2009 to 2012, uh, if you were paying attention. Never really got more than five teams in the league. But uh, if you remember teams like the California Redwoods or the New York Sentinels, uh, the Las Vegas Locos, uh, let's see, the Omaha City or the Omaha Nighthawks uh, were a very popular team in uh, the UFL. 
let's see, the Sacramento Mountain Lions, uh, the Virginia Destroyers, which uh, started their original lives as the as the Florida Tuskers. And then a whole a fascinating set of stories around the uh, the four or so seasons of this thing called the United Football League, which we're going to get into with our guest this week, Michael Hugh. It's a fascinating tale, and uh, it's wrapped up in a lot of intrigue as well as some expectations. Uh, if you sort of dial it back to uh, 2007 or so when the UFL uh, kind of sort of got going, Messrs. Bill Hambrick of uh, of venture capital fame out in California, uh, Tim Armstrong of uh, uh, AOL and previously Google fame, uh, Mark Cuban was uh, rumored to be part of this. Nancy Pelosi's, uh, yes, our uh, uh, U.S. Uh, House of Representatives uh, leader, her husband was uh, part of the uh, original uh, mix as well. This are, these are all people sort of uh, uh, looking around at yet again pro football and perhaps uh, why uh, maybe the NFL hadn't uh, uh, maybe expanded in a whole bunch of years and frankly, uh, around uh, 2008, 2009, uh, some perhaps in certain circles expectations that the National Football League might wind up seeing its players go on strike or uh, the uh, owners locking out the players or some some form or fashion of that. And uh, the thinking was uh, Paul Pelosi, uh, Nancy uh, Pelosi's uh, husband, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, uh, T. Boom Pickens was in the mix as well. Uh, these are all people either rumored or actually involved financially. Uh, in uh, starting this uh, UFL, United Football League, with the thought that perhaps, uh, not unlike uh, some other league expectations too, especially around the NFL, of perhaps player strife that would might come in the big league, the uh, National Football League, and and if that were to have occurred uh, in the latter part of the uh, of the aughts, uh, the uh, thinking was that this UFL, this fledgling United Football League, might. Uh, be the only thing in town, the only game in town, pro football wise, and perhaps uh, could uh, indeed uh, sop up some of the uh, uh, the forlorn, not only players, but also certainly the uh, the fans that might be missing the NFL. Of course, all of that never sort of really uh, panned out, but it still didn't stop the UFL from giving a go with some uh, some major names, uh, especially in the coaching ranks. We're talking about uh, 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 people like Dennis Green. And um, uh, Doug Williams uh, was in the mix. Uh, you had people like Jim Hazlitt uh, in the mix. You had, um, you know, a whole bunch of, uh, of Jim Fossil. Uh, these are all players, uh, coaches. We uh, had a lot of players who had had a, a couple of cups of coffee uh, in the National Football League. And, and again, this is a story that we've heard uh, over and over again when we talk about things like the World Football League and the USFL and things like NFL Europa and um, – uh, the World League of American Football. These are, you know, it's either p players on the way up, uh, young players that for whatever reasons uh, got their cups of coffee in various NFL training camps or or got cut or uh, were shortened by injury and wanted to make the comeback. Uh, perhaps uh, these are players that uh, had some glory years and felt that they had a few things, uh, a few games, a few seasons left in the tank. Uh, shake that vigorously. Uh, f folks, uh, you know, looking maybe to get back into the show of the NFL. These are all sort of uh, the stories, not only of the players, but the coaches, uh, administrators as well. And and as we've talked about many, many times, uh, plenty of uh, a pro football caliber quality uh, uh, folks out there uh, on all levels, whether they be on the coaching or the management or certainly the player ranks. We're going to see it again in the XFL in a couple of weeks. 
Uh, we thought we were going to see it with the uh, Alliance of American Football. But again, you know, the football was probably not the problem with the AAF, but uh, there were plenty of players and plenty of aspirants ready to sort of, uh, uh, you know, buckle up and get into the game and and, and continue uh, or, or, or pursue further a professional career. And, and uh, the UFL, again, in the late uh, 2000s, early two, uh, 2010s, uh, was absolutely part of that mixture. And we're going to get into that uh, with the original uh, and long time, uh, I guess I think the only, frankly, commissioner of the UFL, Michael Hugh, who himself uh, was, uh, you know, a, is and still is a pro football management renegade. He was part of the World League of American Football. Uh, he uh, was a management uh, uh, person within the uh, Detroit Lions organization and was uh, drafted into this UFL by uh, the folks like Bill Hembrick and, and, uh, and Tim Armstrong and, uh, and Paul Pelosi and some of the other money folks behind this. And we're going to get into sort of the ups and, and largely downs and sidewayses uh, of the United Football League coming right up with Michael Hugh in just a couple of moments. This is fascinating stuff. Uh, it's the reason why we live, the reason why I exist on this show. Uh, and uh, we invite you to stay tuned and and maybe gear up for for some of it by a couple of purchases with some of our great sponsors. Why don't you? You want to keep this show going and all these kind of great stories that we love to unearth for you each and every week? Well, one best way to do that is to go visit some of our sponsors and make a couple of purchases, by golly. Why don't you? And uh, to celebrate the UFL, the United Football League's existence, by all means, check out our friends at two different places. One, OldSchoolShirts.com. Uh, our friend P.F. Wilson and his gang of merry women and men uh, in Cincinnati. Uh, there's a tremendously looking, awesome uh, T-shirt featuring the Florida Tuskers, who uh, played in the Citrus Bowl, now known as Camping World Stadium in Orlando, and even for you aficionados during the first season in 2009, actually played a game in uh, Tropicana Field in St. Petersburg, Florida. They were uh, some of the uh, the owners of that team were the owners then of uh, the Florida Rays, uh, the Tampa Bay Rays, excuse me, the Tampa, whatever they're calling themselves, the Rays. Yeah, the Tampa Rays, Tampa Bay Rays uh, were part of that mixture. Of course, they're playing in St. Petersburg. I get them mixed up and, I, you know, it's you, I'm sorry, forgive me. But the Florida Tuskers uh, were uh, a team that uh, were, I think, in just about every season of the UFL. And there's a great T-shirt there uh, there uh, for you to purchase uh, and uh, in different sizes and shapes and, and colors. Uh, at OldSchoolShirts.com. And of course, we've got uh, a, a promo code for you there. When you go and check out at, uh, at OldSchoolShirts.com, make sure you use the promo code GOODSEATS. GOODSEATS, so you get 10% off all of your purchases, that promo code GOODSEATS at OldSchoolShirts.com. And uh, if uh, you weren't a Florida Tuskers fan or uh, you fancy yourself uh, as, a, as a fan of the uh, old Las Vegas Locos, uh, the Virginia Destroyers, the Omaha Nighthawks, the Sacramento Mountain Lions, the New York Sentinels, uh, all of those uh, teams, the Hartford Colonials, God forbid, I, I forgot to mention them earlier. Well, why do you also head over to 503 Sports? They call themselves the king of throwbacks. They do. And if you head over to 503 Sports at 503-sports.com, don't forget that dash, 503-sports.com, you'll go to the UFL section and not only will you find a couple of T-shirts, you'll find a, a different version of the Florida Tusker shirt, uh, which you, but you also find a couple of shirts from the Hartford Colonials, or you want a Locomotives t-shirt, you'll find that there. The Sacramento Mountain Lions, the Sentinels, they're all, the New York Sentinels version, the Omaha Nighthawk, they're all there, all those shirts. But also, you'll find a couple of mini helmets uh, for some of the teams. The California Redwoods uh, are represented, et cetera, as well as two versions of uh, handcrafted uh, replica jerseys. So if you fancy yourself 
uh, a true fan of the UFL. And if you were fans either in Omaha of the Nighthawks or in Sacramento of the Mountain Lions, you can uh, order uh, and personalize with your number and, uh, and name on the back an actual jersey, a replica jersey of each of those teams for the United Football League. Again, 503 Sports. That's 503-sports.com. And yes, of course, we have a promo code for you there. Use the promo code SEATS and get 10% off all of your purchases there, whether it's one of the T-shirts or one of the uh, the mini helmets or one of these gorgeous-looking uh, Omaha Nighthawks or Sacramento Mountain Lions uh, UFL jerseys. They're uh, all there for you and 10% off all of it at 503sports. Again, 503-sports.com, promo code SEATS. And we thank Dustin Alameda and his friends at 503sports out there in Portland. And we thank you for continuing to listen and uh, buckling up for a fun and uh, wild conversation about the United Football League, the UFL with its commissioner, its former commissioner, Michael Hugh, coming up right at you. Before we kind of gave it into the UFL, maybe you can give our audience a sense of you're a lawyer by trade, right? How did you get involved in, in sports and, and all that kind of stuff in the first place that even got you on the precipice of getting involved in this wacky league called the UFL? Well, I was an athlete in high school and college, and sports was always a huge part of my life. And as I looked at the National Football League, you know, a goal I had early on was crazily enough, I want to be commissioner of the National Football League. And I looked at the commissioners of the major sports, football, baseball, basketball, hockey, and almost all of them were lawyers. So I felt that I would need that if I was going to reach my dream. Um, and uh, uh, so I, I went to law school and started out working for the NFL as a lawyer for the NFL. And uh, that gave me a framework of understanding the business, the legal side, the collective bargaining agreement, the relationship from players and owners. Uh, so it really helped me understand the inner workings, not just from a football standpoint or a marketing standpoint, but really to really uh, understand at its core uh, how the business of sports worked. Yeah, well, and that business, of course, has gotten a whole lot more sophisticated even in the last 10 years, let alone, you know, over the decades prior, right? So obviously working on the inside, right? You're not the first person that we've talked to or or in general in the sports landscape that has been on the, the insides of the inner workings of Places like the NFL, a good example would be Don Garber, of course, or the Major League Soccer, right? Uh, hell, even uh, Jim Foster back in the day, helping found the, the AFL and stuff. So it's obviously a, a wellspring of innovation and thinking, right, of people, right? But it's also it's also the big dog, right? It's 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 the entity that, you know, it's long lasting and it's 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 the king of the hill. And, uh, you know, I, I, I would argue that probably innovation isn't necessarily in the top five adjectives or, or, or verbs in in an entity like that, per se. And and I guess I'm, I'm wondering how much of this was experience versus how much of it was knowing what works and maybe maybe perhaps what doesn't and, and and some having some other ideas about how the NFL and pro football and pro sports could operate. Well, it's interesting because I think you're exactly right. I looked at it as a springboard. Most people, uh, to be as young as I was as a lawyer for the NFL, would think, you know, I've reached a pinnacle. I'm going to be here for the rest of my career. And I, uh, I saw the NFL as a, as a learning vehicle, understand the inner workings, but I always had more of a, uh, entrepreneurial or leadership aspect to it. And I found out very early that 
you know, the NFL doesn't change much. It likes to do the things that it does the same way it does. It has an audience that sort of likes it stayed and true and innovation and change are sort of uh, words that they don't like to use at the league offices. Well, okay. So you got to kind of, uh, uh, I guess a pull on that sort of entrepreneurial string with with something that I you know depending on your perspective was either sort of uh, a wise idea or or a, a folly filled one in in the World League of American Football. And we've had a a number of conversations uh, with with folks both directly and indirectly uh, involved with that league, but th- that seems to me based on my read of your your background that was kind of your first and I'm gonna call it spinoff, but real sort of operational kind of you know if being thrown in the pool, shall we say. Yeah, well, I wasn't adverse to trying those kinds of things. The taking was something, you know, that I was I was prone to as a, as a young person in my career, because I thought that every experience wasn't going to be measured on whether it's successful or not from the standpoint of the league or the entity, but how much I could learn from it. And I think uh, the World League of American Football was a great learning tool for me. I got to manage a team as a general manager. I got to select Chan Gailey as a as a head coach. I got to manage players. I got to understand how football worked overseas. I got to understand how the product resonated with people in Europe. Um, and I understood, got to understand the business side of, of working an off product to the main player and, and how that works and, and how people receive you when you're a developmental or minor league. And uh, so for me, it was, it was a terrific experience. I never sort of looked at it from the standpoint of, you know, it was a failed entity because uh, I learned so much. Well, can you can you give a, give me a sense of of Birmingham, the the U.S. cities domiciled in this World League, sort of the vision? Because obviously you, it's developmental, but it's also it almost seems like it's it's a double sort of uh, focus to kind of also spread the gospel, shall we say, uh, in in Europe and maybe Mexico and, and Canada as well to kind of really you know double as if you will an international. Uh, outgrowth of of what is was largely a domestic league at the time. Well, I think what the NFL always believed and believes today that they are the uh, owner and um, sacred heart of professional football. And so, having teams in the states uh, in a spring league pre- prevented any other spring league from coming in and taking that space. It was also under the auspices of growing international revenues from TV markets that weren't really following even the NFL. I mean, even the BBC was barely you know, buying the uh, Super Bowl, let alone any of the regular games. And so it was uh, uh, under the auspices that it was going to grow uh, international television markets. But I think it was also put there again to get a foothold to keep any other type of interloper from coming in and trying to put American football there. So I don't think the World League of American Football was really intended and funded uh, to be a true developmental league. I think it was there as a placeholder so that uh, no one else could take that space. All right. Well, before we move on from, from that, I, I do want to ask about uh, uh, your your role in Birmingham, right? So the Birmingham Fire was uh, was the team that you were general managing uh, in in the WLAF. And I, you know, I can't believe I just said that because it's always impossible <laughs> to say. But Birmingham, right, if, if, uh, it, it speaks to uh, just as well as Sacramento and, and San Antonio and some of the other sort of places, the, I don't know, Birmingham, probably the quintessential example, right, of the city, a city that has historically been uh, a go-to for, just like the AAF recently, uh, for pro football uh, as a market that, you know, never sort of 
gets to be sort of at the summit of the NFL, uh, but uh, is has enough of a football sort of legacy, the state, the region, and this seemed to be kind of you know the the latest attempt, shall we say, to get a a, a competitor pro football team uh, in Birmingham. But maybe you can explain a little bit about sort of the the unique, perhaps, nature of Birmingham and why it's constantly it, leagues go to the well uh, to Birmingham. It seems all the time. Well, it's the same players. I mean, I think the reality is they pick those markets that are not necessarily second tier cities because you could say Jacksonville was at the time it got an NFL franchise. But I think it's a market that, and Jacksonville had been part of that Birmingham type group earlier on. But I think it was markets that the NFL has sort of figured will never get NFL franchises. They have very strong, passionate football fans connected to college football. And this is a, you know, sort of a second place finish for them to keep inviting them to get a pro football team so that they have something to cheer about. And, and I think people in those cities are more sophisticated than that. Uh, but these leagues continue to go to them and sort of tweak that interest and say, you know, don't you want to feel like a pro franchise market? And there's a lure to that that keeps drawing those franchises and those cities back in because they want to continue to prove to the major cities that they are a good football market, that they love football and that they can support it. And I think that's what drives those markets to continue to be plucked at, you know, uh, league after league after league. So did, did you think that the that the NFL had it right when it kind of uh, clipped, if you will, the the uh, the domestic teams and kind of then redoubled its focus on on Europe with with ultimately became Europa and that kind of stuff? And uh, do you think that maybe that was sort of the the fix or, or was the economy too big of a burden to kind of overcome or, or maybe, as you were possibly hinting, uh, I don't want to say lack of will or funding, but maybe the league kind of just generally lost interests overall for whatever reason? Yeah, I think it was ego, too. I don't think the NFL owners ever really believed that they needed a developmental league. I think they thought that it would be nice to have some of the third-team quarterbacks, you know, gain some experience in the in the spring so that they could be uh, get some actual game experience. The college had really very nicely fit that role as a developmental league for the NFL. And so I never really wanted to fund a developmental league. If someone else was willing to do it and they could control it, how the World League of American Football was set up, uh, then I think they would do it. But because the relationship between the individual franchise owners and the NFL owners was not compatible it made sense to get rid of the local markets domestically and just look at the international markets, still hoping to string those uh, cords that maybe we can develop, you know, a television market and maybe sell merchandise uh, overseas because at the time the NFL was playing, you know, American football games internationally. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And, and it's, it's, it's probably also a bit of it. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right. You're mentioning college football really essentially is the, the feeder league or the minor league or the developmental sort of league uh, system. But then, you know, you look at say the NBA and college basketball and, and now the, the, the D league or the G league now. Right. And, and, you know, and having the CBA over the, over history, you know, being, loosely if, if even if that affiliated with the nba i mean there's always always people seeming to i i don't know you wonder if the concept of especially given the state of college sports these days i i digress here but it, but it's interesting the the term developmental i i i bring it up only because i think some people embrace that word when it comes to some of these leagues and some kind of don't or maybe they conveniently use it like like the aaf 
for all its faults uh, and or, frankly, vision. And and what of the XFL? We'll talk about that maybe as sort of a, a rounding a statement near the end. But, you know, it's 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 very interesting to sort of see how certain people in the, in the football sort of landscape sort of see that having a, some kind of developmental or feeder system might make sense, especially from a business perspective. Yet, you know, the, the, there's only four years in college, knock on wood, right? That, you know, it doesn't right. mean that players just stop when they become 22 years old, right? Yeah, I mean, there's no question that, uh, you know, 15 players or so cycle off a roster each year who were playing in the NFL. And oftentimes as the new players come in, those players kind of get left out in the drift and don't have an opportunity uh, to get back on a roster right away. And there's other talent that, that also falls victim to that, that if it had the benefit of actually playing in games, uh, you would get to see, you know, some tremendous talent. And so I think there's clearly a need uh, beyond the 32 teams that's, you know, just talking about the NFL uh, and beyond college for players who've already finished college to get more playing experience. There's a big leap between college football and professional football. And so, you know, I think there's definitely a market for that, how it operates and whether or not, you know, a true developmental league uh, would do that, I guess, hasn't really been done or proven. Uh, But there's no question. I don't think anyone would debate uh, that there's value to taking a lot of these players uh, beyond those that can play on a, on an individual roster and giving them actual playing experience. Yeah, or even as an alternative, frankly, right? Uh, yeah. Instead of going through the, in many cases, not all, uh, the charade, shall we say, of college education yeah. while playing, right? And um, yeah, there's something to be said for that because it, it becomes more of like a farm system and stuff. But then again, you know, you look at baseball and, and its issues too. So, I, well, okay, but I digress. I, so you you, <laughs> you 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 rolled over then into back into the mothership, right? With, uh, yeah. with Detroit and then Jacksonville. But I, I guess I want to thread the needle between sort of that sort of entrepreneurial within the, uh, you know, the the larger entity of the NFL, the, the safe, shall we say, I- innovative uh, exploit back to the mothership. But um, maybe you can sort of walk our audience through a little bit of sort of uh, your experiences in, in Detroit and Jacksonville and then the the maybe crazy scenarios that kind of lead you to the latter part of the, the aughts with this fledgling UFL thing. Yeah. Well, I, I went to Detroit because, again, I really wanted to do it my way. I wanted to be disruptive to the normal team model that existed before in the NFL and see if it would work. And so Detroit was one of those teams that had been perennially bad for a number of years. It continued to do things uh, the, the same way. Russ Thomas had been the GM, had a horrific relationship with the players, almost begrudgingly that they were making so much money and being wasteful of the money. And and Chuck Schmidt had come in as a, a CFO and now as a president of the team and, and was looking for someone uh, African-American who could relate to the players. And he thought that might be a tool to better the relations with the players. Uh, but I came in with a different vision. I came in with the understanding that the dynamics of the team, the culture of the team were the critical things that made the difference of teams that won and lost. And so I just changed uh, the the structure and 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 hired different people and promoted people from within and changed the culture and and elevated and changed diversity that had never existed there and a groundswell happened where people bought into it and the team that was three and thirteen the year before I got there uh, turned around to a thirteen and three team and won a divisional 
championship, and that hadn't happened in 30 years, and it was the same group of players. And so for me, it was proof that uh, you know, getting all cylinders firing, not just the football team, but the front office, the marketing department, everybody engaged with the same sort of mindset that they're part of the team and that winning is dependent on all of those people, the ticket salespeople. That was the culture that we changed. And I think that from the years I spent as a lawyer and working around the league and looking at all the teams that had been successful, that was the recipe that I took away that meant you could win. It had to happen you know, throughout an organization and Detroit, I was only there for a year and then went to Jacksonville. But in that year, we changed that culture and, 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 and then performance happened, you know, uh, on the field as well. Well, I would guess, too, because Detroit is such a, a long time and legacy franchise, the Ford family and, and, yeah. and sort of the football royalty, shall we say, right? We see it with the Bears yeah. and the Steelers. And, and while that's all good and, and, and historically rooted and, and it also, you know, as sort of alluded to earlier, it also is not necessarily the push, frankly, to keep up right. and, and and innovate, right? And it would seem to me that Jacksonville, being a more relatively newer franchise, the, would be a bit more of a, a I don't know, a cleaner slate or a, a bigger uh, palette to play with, though, no? Yeah, it was. And, you know, there was a little expectation of success, which allowed for that innovation because Tampa – and Seattle, who had come in in 76, were just horrific as uh, expansion franchise teams. I mean, they suffered. I think Tampa lost its first 24 games or something. So, I mean, those, 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 those teams were, were perennially bad. And I don't think people, notwithstanding the extra draft choices that these expansion teams were getting, uh, were going to be very good. And they certainly didn't expect, you know, Carolina and Jacksonville to get to championship games in such short order uh, and have the success that they had. Um, and that clearly wasn't just because, you know, we were given a few extra draft choices. Um, it was because those teams were able to, you know, cultivate, uh, chemistry and, and get their communities behind it. And, 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 and Carolina and Jacksonville both had belief that why not them being successful? They didn't come in with the mindset that they had the toil and obscurity like Seattle and Tampa Bay had. They came in with the understanding that, Hey, we can win. So, how are your experiences then, right? I mean, you're you're young, you're a go-getter, you're, mm-hmm. you're African-American, you've got lots of sort of energy and, and new ideas and concepts and stuff. I, I, I can imagine where in certain circles of the NFL, that's going to be warmly received. And, and I'm guessing, and this is totally a guess on my part, that in sure. a larger share of environments in the NFL, it's going to be sort of seen as uh, not so fast, kid. Yeah, arrogant, brandish, who does he think he is? This is a totem pole uh, kind of system, and no, you're no just leapfrogging. Yeah. yeah, you're leapfrogging and, 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 and brandishing ego and telling people you're going to be successful and this isn't the NFL way, and, and you're, you're, you're openly competitive and critical of other franchises. It was all those things, and there was a target on my back. But, you know, from the time that I left the NFL League office, I left without necessarily – uh, worrying about, you know, an invitation to come back. I mean, I was going to do it the way I was going to do it, uh, that I thought was the right way. I wasn't looking to offend anyone, but I knew that, you know, the style that I was going to use was not going to resonate with people there who were just very accustomed to doing it the old way, but nothing about me represented the old NFL guard. And so, uh, there was no reason for me to even try to mimic that. 
So did you ever think, and then obviously you left for a bunch of years to, to run a sports uh, uh, agency slash consultancy, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but did you ever, I, I, was, was there ever the itch, shall we say, to somehow uh, strike out on sort of the Challenger League thing? Uh, now, given the very long history of Challenger Leagues in football, uh, or did it never sort of occur to you until this USFL thing sort of started to gestate later in the decade? No, I always thought there was a market for it because I, I realized that if you really looked at our expansion teams in Jacksonville and Carolina, if there had only been 30 teams in the NFL, this is what we were. And we, we were teams that could have easily been built in the spring because the players that we got, nobody else wanted. I mean, they teams got to like get out of jail, cap jail free by taking all your bus and the salary cap on your rosters and upload them to the uh, expansion teams, and you no longer have the salary cap debt that you had on them. So it was a chance to clear your books. I mean, people put every mistake they could into the expansion pool. And so this wasn't um, – uh, it showed me in building our team and in our first or second year creating nine first-time pro bowlers from players that nobody else wanted into the, in the league that there was enough good talent there that you could form a competitive league. And a league that actually would be relatively on par, wouldn't have the same top 10 star players on each team, but it would have every other part of an NFL team that you could create. And that if you put that product on the field, it would be seen as an authentic NFL product. That's See, that's really interesting because that, that legitimizes the uh, oft-used uh, 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 thought about uh, there are plenty of great, you know, quality players out there that, you know, uh, uh, go beyond what a 30 or 32 team NFL can can absorb. And it, it's there. There's a clearly is a talent pool out there and and and, and there are opportunities for for more jobs and more uh, whether it's development going upwards or downwards into or with uh, or aside uh, the NFL. I think that's right. I mean, every NFL roster brings 90 players to camp and it keeps 53 players and there's 40 players cut from 32 teams. I mean, some of those players can play in the National Football League and they have to make room for the rookie class. 300 players get drafted every year. They have to come in and another 350 or 400 come in as undrafted players. 10% of the undrafted players that come in end up starting in the National Football League. The draft is a imprecise system you got you know mark brunel who played for our team six round pick three-time pro bowler uh, tom brady the, the history goes on so the draft is never an exact science uh, here in jacksonville they've got men shoot fever for a kid that was taken in the sixth round over an 80 million dollar so you know the reality is talent is all over this league and when you give it all you know throughout and within and outside of the league and so yeah there's a market to create other talented teams all right. Well, let's 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 forward now to around 2007 ish or so. And I'm really sort of I, I'm curious about the germ of the idea, which sort of came first. Was it was it you into this uh, and, and the money and the, the investors and the idea or was it them finding you? What, what was sort of the the early seeds? Like when did when did this United Football League thing a come across your radar and b maybe more intriguingly, how? Well, there was a couple of investors, Bill Hambrick, who had been an uh, investor uh, out in California with a big firm called Hambrick & Quist, and they sold to a major player for over a billion dollars. 
and he had been a owner in the USFL. So he and a couple of his buddies had believed from the USFL that there was still a market for spring football. They hired a couple of executives that come from the NBA and they were operational for about six months and they would contact NFL people. I think Marty Schottenheimer was one of the guys they contacted about running football operations and nobody would talk to them because they didn't even want to whisper of their name going out. So they sort of realized one, they needed an NFL insider to really understand how to put this league together and two, to authenticate it in a way that they could actually have conversations uh, with the NFL people. So they contacted me and asked what I consult to help them understand this. And the first thing they said is we want to go out and buy NFL Europe. It had just disbanded. And when there's all those coaches, all those players, we'll just purchase those rights to all those players and coaches and reformat that and create a league here. And I said, well, that's the wrong thing to do because the configuration of NFL Europe is sort of just the castaways from NFL rosters of people that the NFL rosters signed only to put into that league. So they never even had an interest. So this isn't even the, the guys off of the 90 man roster that are cut to 53. These are people that are literally signed to go play in Europe. So they're, they're the wrong people. They don't, there's, there's talent there. So I started giving them insight in how you could create a football product but there were some cool yeah. logos. And a couple of good stories, but by and large, these weren't the guys that were going to, going to, you know, uh, you could tell there was a drop off in talent. I don't think they were even as good as the best college teams. So, so they, after a while they said, you know, you've got this down so well, would you think about running this league? And, uh, and that's sort of how it happened. All right, what's this? Dollar Shave Club, of course. Dollar Shave Club is uh, is awesome, friends, and I highly encourage you to give them a try. I love the quality of their products, and it's uh, it's awesome uh, that they asked me to do a little spot for them because uh, I've been using their products for a good, I don't know, year and a half, almost two years now. I love the, uh, the convenience. I love the quality of the products. I love the fact that they uh, help replenish uh, my needs to uh, help me, not just with shaving, frankly, but just about all kinds of uh, grooming essentials when it's, uh, you know, whether it's showering or shaving, uh, but also styling one's hair or brushing one's teeth. Yes, even, you know, wiping and keeping clean certain areas of uh, of the body elsewhere, shall we say. Dollar Shave Club is not just about just a good shave, uh, but so much more. And we have an awesome opportunity uh, for you to uh, experience and enjoy uh, some of the uh, benefits that I've been uh, sharing uh, from the friend, our friends at Dollar Shave Club just for you, our, our great listeners. Right now, you can put the quality of Dollar Shave Club's products to the test. Their Ultimate Shave Starter Set has basically everything that you need for an amazing shave. And it's a great way to try and, and sample for yourself the Dollar Shave uh, Club experience. In this starter set, you get the Executive Razor, you get the Shave Butter, you get their Prep Scrub, and you get the <laughs> Post Shave Dew. Uh, say that three times fast. The best part, of course, though, is that you could try it for just $5. That's right, 5 bucks, and you're going to get the Ultimate Shave Starter Set, including all those things. And after that, they'll get you set up for restocking with uh, regular size products at their regular prices. And you can, of course, choose to uh, receive those as early and as often or as, you know, as uh, not often as, as you need 
uh, based on your uh, your particular needs. So in essence, it's uh, five bucks for the Ultimate Shave Starter Set uh, from Dollar Shave Club. So get your Ultimate Starter Set for just five bucks uh, at our little special website here. It's dollarshaveclub.com slash good seats. Again, that's dollarshaveclub.com slash good seats for you to try for five bucks. Yes, just five simoleons. The uh, Ultimate Shave Starter Set from our friends at Dollar Shave Club. We thank them for their sponsorship of this week's episode. And we, of course, thank you for continuing to listen to our conversation coming right back at you. So this was set up as a, as a spring league concept. Yeah, to start? Yes. Yes. So what happened to that or is that sort of, I mean, okay, so what well, about... Yeah, yeah. How, how does that, I didn't think that yeah. was smart either because the really? problem with the spring league is if you're really going to get NFL caliber players and they play 12, 15 games in the spring, by the time training camp comes in June and July, they're exhausted. They've played February, March, and April and May, and they literally no longer have the legs to go through a 20-game season in the NFL. If they were that good, they wouldn't already be out on the street. So to expect players to play – 15 games, 12 games in the spring, and then 20 games in their bodies just can't take it. And so what would happen is you'd get these guys who would be pretty good in spring that come to training camp, which is a very physically exhausting time, blow out their legs, be exhausted, be less productive because they, they didn't have any rest and they weren't as productive. And then even if they did make rosters, they certainly couldn't hang for the next 20 weeks. And so my idea was that's that's foolish. If we want players, we need a, a bridge season during the NFL season when week eight or nine of the NFL season comes about and teams have, you know, tons of injuries. They have no place to replace these players except for fat kids that have been sitting on the couch for the last eight weeks eating popcorn and chips, and they're not ready to come in and play. These guys will have played eight or nine games and they'll be ready to jump in and go. So that's why I thought playing alongside the NFL made more sense. That's interesting. And that sounds a little like the old WFL, uh, sort of sort of leading yeah. into and, and maybe arguably the CFL in, in some respects. Although right. I don't care as much. All right. Well, before we get there, though, what, the, the money, right? Obviously, you, you probably had to be convinced that there was some real dough and, uh, shall we say, fortitude, I guess, uh, or uh, <laughs> yeah. commitment uh, to that. And you mentioned Bill Hambrick, but also... You know, there are people like at least names thrown around at the time, Mark Cuban and, and Boone Pickens and Tim yeah. Armstrong, Paul Pelosi. Yeah. I mean, where do these who are these names? Who are these? How did you know that at least uh, on, on paper that there was some real money behind this to make it like a legit thing? Well, the first piece was Hambrick, who said that uh, he had started a little wine company uh, called Belvedere Wine. And this vodka company decided to start calling their vodka Belvedere Vodka. And his little wine company out in Napa Valley that only sold maybe 2,000 bottles a year um, had a trademark for Belvedere name. And when the uh, vodka company started calling itself Belvedere Vodka, they violated that trademark. He sued them and won 80 million bucks. And he said, I'm putting the 80 million in to start. The rest is yours to go earn and, and get with investors. So I figured I had an 80 million start. It was worth long. And from that... I met Mark Cuban and, and you know, uh, Paul Pelosi and the people that you mentioned and Boone Pickens and a whole bunch of other people uh, to put the rest of the money together. 
And you, you you knew how much they needed probably though, right? And and you felt comfortable or at least convinced at the time that they were uh, proverbially in it for the long haul or, or sort of understood that there's, a, shall we say, deficit spending ahead? Well, you always believe that. And then, of course, you know, the tug when someone has spent 50 million bucks gets a lot tighter, you know, after they spend it. But most people are, you know, are inclined to do so, feel more comfortable on the front end than the back end. So I knew there would always be a little bit of a pressure point the same way when I had NFL owners and spending money uh, on players with them. So, you know, I've been working with a bunch of billionaires prior to that. So I, I had a good sense of that. Uh, I was comfortable that, you know, they were investing in me as much as they were in the league and that, you know, that I'd have to prove my worth as much as the league did. Well, and it had to be kind of a heady experience because it allowed you a, a bit of uh, free reign to kind of, you know, uh, sort of shape this sort of with some real vision behind it. Yeah. So give me a sense then of, of how you're formulating some strategy here. You're talking about already sort of shifting more to the fall. Uh, what about markets and, and, and television and sort of and the roster approaches? Like what are your general sensibilities about how to go about this? Because it's interesting, the first year it looks like uh, you sort of went the uh, original Arena Football League route, which was sort of a soft kind of launch. I'm curious as to how that wound up becoming your, your first shot, your first salvo in 2009? Well, it was tough because nobody really wanted to be first guy in. I mean, Hamburg was in, but the other people were a little, you know, hesitant because of the concept of playing in the fall. I think if we were a spring league, they would have just dumped money into it because the mindset was there's good talent playing in the spring. Everybody just believes spring, spring, spring. That was an easy sell. Playing alongside the NFL, people felt you'll never get TV. The market is saturated. You already have college. And so it was just difficult. And of course, 2007, 2008 was a little bit of a hiccup in the financial world just, globally, just a little. Um, as you recall. So, so those kind of things, I think, created a perfect storm that made it a little difficult to get eight franchises right away. And so I thought, look, let's do like a pilot. Let's do a, a beta test. Let's run four teams out there because it really doesn't have to be a full league. All we have to show is that in some markets, these teams can generate a real quality football product. And it can produce a TV product that's similar to the NFL. And if we do that, then we can open up a full, you know, 8, 10, 12 teams uh, the following year. We don't have to sit and wait for this. We just have to just have to run the pilot to sell the sell the other episodes. And how OK, so how much of that was economically driven or distracting uh, the macro economy and how much of that was just operational inabilities to kind of get more? It, it sounds like economics writ large yeah. was kind of a bigger factor than, than most would assume. It was, it was, I mean, because, you know, no one was going to give us a, a discount. I mean, people were apprehensive that the NFL might look on this negatively. No one was bold enough to play alongside the NFL. Uh, and so even with the networks, I mean, initially we went to Fox, they were scared and David Hill told us we could never put a product together. So I think they were naive too. Uh, but the CBS came on board and Mark Cuban came on board and he had his, uh, his own network at the time, uh, HDNet. And so, uh, so all of a sudden we had a platform, uh, and while it was, you know, rough sailing on, on some of the economics I and mean, we were paying tons of money for workers comp and those kinds of things and stadiums, you know, were not discounting for us. Uh, so, so we did what we had to do to launch. But it also seemed like uh, you were, I don't know, parsimonious or or choosing, frankly, not to spend a ton of ton of dough on on marketing per se, right? It was almost. It seems like you were trying to make the yeah. product 
really good and strong and concentrated and let that sort of maybe do some of the selling and maybe you could kind of revisit that in an expanded format the, the following year? Yeah, that was true. I mean, I did hire Frank Bruno, who's been one of the top guys at the NFL. His company, 16W, at marketing had uh, represented some of the top talent on TV broadcasts. And he was his group was one of the originators of the uh, quarterback club. Uh, so they knew how to market marquee products. I wasn't quite so sure how they do with a second tier product to start, but I knew they had the ability to open doors with stub hubs and the major providers of sports marketing and sponsorships. And that's what I needed, at least to, to give credibility to us to start. Well, so give me a sense as, as things rolled on. I, I guess let me ask you this first question. So one play got going and, and you saw the the crowds or, or, you know, the in the markets that you were playing in and stuff. I mean, it, what this truly must have felt uh, not just on a player level, but developmental as as a as an enterprise. Right. What was your thinking during the the, the, the soft launch and, and sort of at, as a at the sort of tail end of this uh, of this season, like uh, was it what you expected? Did you think it was going to be harder or easier? Uh, what, what things did you kind of how yeah. much the NFL well, overshadowing and all that stuff? Well, you invest literally everything of yourself to do this. You know, you 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 wake up at two in the morning and you you start looking at the clock, wondering how many more hours do you have to wait before you can start emailing your staff, and you know you go till you can't go anymore. But that's what I did in Jacksonville, and that's what I did in Detroit. And, and this felt just like that. It felt like Jacksonville, you know, putting a team together or Birmingham putting a team together. So so for me, this this was like a third or fourth time at it. And so the pace I was familiar with and and the ups and downs and the hiccups I was familiar with. And so uh, so it didn't it wasn't, you know, throwing me off that there were good days and bad days. I, I, I'd been through that. And I just kind of knew that that I believed in the in the outcome, and then just kept my head down through the process. Well, and, and I will say this too. I mean, you were uh, from a football operations perspective, right? You, you had you know some some very compelling names, both on the head coaching side of things, as well as some some of the players. You know, some of whom were you know Super Bowl uh, MVPs, and and uh, so the, you, you were clearly at least on on some small level with four teams showing that you there was talent out there. And there was some great coaching out there, uh, either, you know, historically or, or still up and coming that, you know, that, that that these folks could get a shot and then some and play some quality football. I, I think a lot of people actually were pretty surprised. I think they were. Things came together that way. Yeah, I mean, and, and I could have had 10 more coaches uh, uh, for teams. I mean, Hugh Jackson hadn't been a head coach yet. He was interested. And you could just literally go up and down the list. And the guys we brought in, Sean McVay as a coordinator, ends up becoming a head coach. Jay Gruden ends up becoming a head coach. Chris Palmer, who had been a head coach but couldn't get back in the league, and then he became a coordinator again. Jim Hazlitt had just finished being a head coach for the Rams. We hired him. I mean, when I went to the Senior Bowl and other places, there almost wasn't a coach I couldn't speak to that was 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 that would be considering uh, working in our league. So I was hopeful, but really surprised at just how strong an interest. Uh, top, top people in the NFL were GMs and coaches about coming to the league. But I also get the sense, though, that there was, and I'm really curious to sort of see, A, if this is true, and B, if so, when. I guess this is more easily seen in in, in the context of history. But there was also, you know, clouds brewing in the NFL, right, when it came to labor relations and uh, collective bargaining and, and all those, you know, all those kinds of things, right, that – 
it almost I, I got the sense in in my research here that there was almost sort of a I don't know a back pocket sort of a, a raison d'etre if you will uh, to hang on long enough where yeah. if and when the NFL perhaps you know exploded if you will in terms of labor and lockouts and all that kind of stuff that you guys could maybe somehow become the beneficiaries of that. So uh, number one, am I being cynical or, or, or is that true? No, that was really the plan. I mean, the, the dialogue between D DeMore Smith and, and, and Goodell and the league and the players was so acrimonious and the league had such a hold on the players that I was absolutely certain that there would be some sort of lockout or work stoppage and having been a lawyer for the league and watching for all of the previous five terminations of the collective bargaining agreement, lockouts, replacement players, strikes, all of the acrimony that went on. Uh, and this was brewing to be an even bigger uh, fight. And so I thought, no question, that there's going to probably be half a season or more of darkness of games because, you know, they're just not going to come to terms on the collective bargaining agreement. And so for us, then being able to get networks to broadcast our games when the NFL was dark was really going to be uh, the tipping point for us. And so my goal was to just hang on and make it until we would get that window of opportunity. When And obviously there was a stoppage, but it was in the off season, right? Right. But I thought it would go into the regular season and, and, the, and the language and the dialogue between both sides was not now, not never. I mean, and of course in large measure, in my view, the players came to the table much more quickly than, than I would have expected and uh, and did a deal and averted cannibalizing the season. All right, well, so get, give me a sense then. So this is a league that lasted three and a half years or so. I, I, I'm really, if just, you know, in some kind of nutshell, if you can kind of sort of explain, I don't want to say the day-to-day of it, but how do you grind out a, a league of four, sometimes five, sometimes four again, teams. Uh, obviously, you know, stability is a relative statement. You know, the crowds were not gigantic, and, and obviously you're going or perceived to be going head-to-head with the NFL. Television, right, you're, you're getting some cable exposure, but it's not like a CBS per se or a, a major broadcast network. How do you how do you grind in it out? Because, you know, the sports fan out there probably kind of looks at it, scratches his head, and says – Wow, I mean, what? Uh, yes, there's great football out there, some great talent, but you know, wow, I, there's the NFL on the weekend, and and you know, how, how do I fit this into my sort of uh, sports consumption landscape? I I got to think you had some moments of not just uh, in the middle of the night, but how do you how do you grind it out, and and how do you go from from optimism to <laughs> the other side and back out again? Well, you know, like I said, it, there's definitely a roller coaster aspect to it. What what held it together, and I think what the glue was was the ownership believed in the league, the players believed in the league, and the coaches believed in the league. And so if everybody around you believes in it, it's a lot easier to combat the optics outside. Uh, it's usually when the internal parts start to crumble that the, internal, the external pressure really has an impact on you. But those players knew they were getting coached by quality NFL coaches, that there was film being done every day, and that they knew that there was no better opportunity for them to show their wares than to be in our league playing every week and having that film go to NFL teams. And the coaches, some who wanted to get back in the league, others who just continued to have the itch, enjoyed coaching these kind of players. It's like a teacher getting back to their classroom and doing what they originally came to be professors or teachers to do. 
that's what these coaches did. And so internally, there wasn't a lot of doubt about it. I mean, we didn't look to the stands and say, how many other people are believing in our message? We just kept kind of doing what came natural to the people and the roles that they were in. And I think if we did anything well, we kept that part of it going. In fact, even when the league had to ultimately dissolve four years later, the owners still wanted to continue to fund it. So I, mean, I just think there was, a, there was just a really passionate belief in, in what we were doing. But was there any moment in time during all of this, and I'm sure you had some naysayers from the outside saying, why are you doing this in the fall? Why are you doing this against, quote unquote, the NFL, even though you're in a bunch of markets that aren't NFL? Why not revisit the spring idea? There, you're proving there is talent. There is great coaching. There, there are people who believe in this. There is a developmental role, if you will, even. When you look at it, you know, it seems almost, in, and maybe it's as, as hindsight, right? But almost insurmountable. You know, especially given when the NFL's labor uh, thing kind of gets resolved and stuff. I intestinal fortitude is one thing, but how do you, yeah. you know, how do you climb that mountain and get and get over that hump when you know just it's just it seems like the NFL is just completely smother you if 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 things don't change. Well, even in the first year, uh, you know, two dozen of our players made NFL rosters at the end of our season. Interesting. So that gave us at least the kind, and immediately went on rosters. Some became kickers, two or three kickers. Gano and a couple of others immediately went on and earned roster spots. And another 20 or 25 players went in and were starters or, or came in to fill roles just like we thought would happen on a more larger frame. So incrementally, we saw a taste of what the league could be. And that helped us hang on to something's going right here. These, these players are you know, getting what they need and they're able to come in and, 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 and do something. So that, that part of it, again, the player side, what was challenging is, you know, getting the markets to support us and getting fans to come out. And, and we, we continued to believe that the only way this would happen is if we could develop the TV product. And so while the, the stands were barren and, you know, we, we just had to realize that we just have to make these prices not an issue. We just have to just let people sample this product and give it to them almost for nothing uh, so that they'll come in and they'll support it. And we've got to find an economic model that will sustain very little ticket revenue because people are just not going to spend disposable dollars that they would use on movies and, and, and restaurants to come to this brand of football, albeit good football, when they have the NFL in college going on simultaneously. Yeah, I, look, I would say, and I think by most accounts, right, that uh, I think uh, from a, a quality of play that you guys punched way above your your ticket, right, in terms of, of yeah. all the things arguably against you in terms of, you know, the fan support and the, the television. But what of television, though, right? I know, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to sort of spark any sort of controversy and stuff, but I do know that, you know, Mark Cuban was – you know, it was not a shrinking violet, right? You know, with a TV network or a fledgling one at that and arguably, you know, it's not sort of the most fully penetrated cable network at the time and arguably still even. But, you know, there were some assets there were some some uh, uh, exposure there. Right. But that HD net right is not NBC. Right. And you understand the importance of it, given all your experience and stuff about television. How, how much of, of that was, you know, kind of part of the. Uh, the logic and, and, you know, uh, was that just around the corner, so to speak, if you could just get that contract that that could give you more life? Well, I, I guess what I did not anticipate or certainly under anticipated was the strength that the NFL has on the networks. I mean, 
when CBS dropped out or when NBC dropped out, they will spin through the teeth to keep the NFL product because of what it means to their network, even though it's obviously a losing proposition economically for them. And so at the potential hint of teeing off the NFL, NBC and the major networks were just never going to get over their skis with our league because while at least arguably they hadn't been told to back away, the reality was no one was going to get out in front and look like they were potentially supporting a competitive or pain in the ass uh, organization to the NFL. And so CBS and some of those networks just told us that directly. And so that made it difficult for us to really see down the path how we could really get, uh, you know, television revenues at a level that could sustain the league, because at least among the NFL providers, they were going to stay in tow. Nobody was willing to tick off the NFL. And, and nobody in television land pushed back and said, hey, what about spring? It's a little bit more flexible for us. They did. They did. Uh, but again, spring meant developmental league, yep. developmental revenues, developmental exit strategy, players that couldn't play in the fall because they would be exhausted because they had played all these games in the spring. So there was very little interest from the real players wanting to play in the spring when they knew their careers would have to happen in the fall. Those are all the reasons why I thought the spring was really challenging. How about the markets themselves? You were in Orlando and Las Vegas and Omaha and Sacramento, some interesting places that you know, have had dalliances with pro versions of football, pro sports, generally more fledgling uh, urban uh, metropolitan areas. Any sort of uh, remembrances and or thought processes that you can recall about why and how those markets came to be? And maybe even, you know, were you surprised uh, negatively or, or positively by by any of them? Actually, I think the markets were pretty good. I mean, Omaha blew us away. I mean, Omaha sold out its stadium for almost every game. I mean, we had Nelly and major providers out there, performers at, at, at halftime and national anthem. Uh, and when we played out in Omaha, uh, I mean, it was huge. It was electric. I mean, people were tailgating two hours before the games. Uh, and we had, some, you know, Dante Culpepper and Jeff Garcia. Uh, you know, one week the USA Today said that the game with the two best quarterbacks going this week is in the UFL. So we'd actually even, you know, gotten a little bit of a, a notoriety in that regard. And because Omaha was a was a successful team, I mean, its fans came out in droves. I mean, if we could have sustained that in, in 12 markets, we certainly would have had something. But to, OK, so, but did that give you a hint that maybe this should be in smaller markets and that's the way to tool and or scale ultimately? Yes. OK, yes, because because. In markets where there's little choice of other options uh, and a passion for the sport, people will come out in droves. And so, you know, I look at business entities like Top Golf, which, okay, why would golf work in all of these different markets? But where they've been very successful as an entertainment product is in these kind of small markets where there's not a lot of other things to do. And two hour wait from people are coming in droves. And so I think that's the recipe of where you have to put these kind of teams. It's very interesting. So when, when okay, so at what point then do you kind of sort of see that the writing is on the wall and that that this is, it's it's you know it's not going to grow past the four or five teams and and you know when, when does the sort of will sort of capitulate? I guess either financially or operationally. 
right? Because it doesn't seem like the quality of play on the field was the problem. No, it really wasn't. I think what happened is our, our you know, shelf life was really making it the three years to the NFL lockout. And when that blew up in our faces and no longer really created an opportunity for network revenue, uh, then ultimately we knew that, uh, you know, we just financially could not continue to go forward, not because the owners wouldn't invest it, but because there still was not a viable plan of how they could ultimately get their money back. And so TV is 70% of the revenues in the National Football League. I mean, you could charge whatever you want in the stadiums and you could sell more, you know, jerseys and apparel. But if you didn't have TV, you could never have the product that you have in the National Football League. So, um, so that's really the holy grail. And that's what we needed in some measure. And, you know, other than covering, you know, production costs, the networks just weren't going to step up and pay us rights fees. How about the ownership structure, right? Uh, obviously, Hambrick was, you know, kind of the, the big money man and or the big sort of name attached with all this. Uh, there were obviously some other big names sort of involved or at least partially so or at least rumored to be. It seems like there's still even some controversy about uh, folks being fully paid and, and Hambrick in particular pay all of his bills as was sort of uh, – yeah, I don't want to sort of litigate stuff here, but I mean, I it seems like like a lot of these things it got it got messy near the end, and maybe even more so than uh, than most people wanted. Well, I think at the very end it did, but up until that point, you know, you didn't hear anything about pay. You know, people got paid. I mean, the first three years, um, we was lean, but we we paid everybody, we paid every bill, and um, you know, we were operating you know uh, fairly fairly smoothly in that regard. But the problem was we were already $150, $200 million in debt, uh, and it didn't look like there was any real recovery. And so I made the decision that we needed to suspend operations going into the fourth year, and it was overruled by the owners who believed they continued to want to go forward, and that's when they had the aborted season. And and then you know some of the owners were left with bills that had been paid. But I think it was a mistake to go forward that next year, but I just think it was – it was just too difficult because the owners kept looking at the product and some of the success they were having in their markets. And we just were unwilling to, to maybe, you know, take a, take an unbiased view of where we were financially. Well, and, and why do you think then what, what was, what was driving the, the, uh, the, the notion and the, the impetus then and, and not maybe listening to the logic that you were sort of giving them after year three. Uh, yeah. I think what, what do they think was going to happen? The title of being an owner. I mean, I think it's the same thing that drives NFL owners. There's a powerful, uh, anecdote that comes with just being an owner of an NFL team or being an owner of any team and having that team and owning it is something that's very difficult for an individual to let go of. And even at the level of where we were, there was still this belief that, that somehow we could dig it out. I mean, they just really enjoyed coming into that owner's box, sitting down and seeing their team out there and having, you know, Denny Green or Jim Haslett or or any of these guys as their coach and players who they had seen in the NFL. So, you know, it's just, you know, an aphrodisiac. It was very hard for them to let go of. All right. Well, let me give you a couple of last questions here to round this out, because this is uh, fascinating. And, and I, we could go hours. Uh, I'm sure you don't want to <laughs> go hours, but I, I could uh, if I if I had the opportunity. All right. So give me a sense of um, uh, we obviously went through the quick rise and the quicker demise of the uh, Alliance yeah. of American Football earlier this year. 
hard to believe. It seems like forever ago, and it was just such a short period of time. And obviously, we've got the uh, uh, the XFL sort of rebooting again and 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 trying its own sort of hand at spring football. Um, I think you're uniquely suited to sort of weigh in. I think with what uh, you might uh, sort of uh, predict and or see uh, as the future uh, for the XFL and or spring football uh, and or frankly just you know either. Uh, developmentally or uh, directly or somewhere in between challenging the supremacy of the NFL in, in professional football. What, what are your thoughts about this coming season of XFL and, and what happened in the AAF? Well, Oliver Luck was a, a good friend and colleague, and we were both GMs together back when the WLAF started. He was uh, with the Frankfurt Germany team, and I was with Birmingham, as you mentioned. So we went back a long ways with these kinds of leagues. And, and, uh, you know, Oliver was was watching as we were operating the, the UFL and uh, studied it very, very closely. And I've spent time with him uh, talking about it as he was putting together plans for the XFL. So I think in some ways they're going to try to mirror some of the things, obviously the things we did well. Uh, but I think that the, the thing they have to solve, which is still unclear, is how do you get television rights fee payments? And I think they think with WWE exposure and Vince McMahon that somehow that will generate Fox or somebody else, ESPN paying them rights fees. Um, you know, I think that's still going to be very challenging because they're going to play during the spring when the kind of, you know, viewership that you get during those time slots is, you know, not even a one Oh rating. And so uh, compared to an NFL game that gets an 18, uh, you know, uh, meaning maybe a million homes watching best case scenario. Um, it's just not going to pay you very much. And so, uh, there, you know, Vince McMahon is, is touting that he's got a $500 million treasure trove that he's putting out into the, to the funding, the teams, but, you know, even billionaires don't want to continue to lose money. And while 500 million may not totally, uh, you know, you know, weak in his pockets, uh, it's still 500 million bucks. And so I think the reality is, is that they have to develop some other revenue strategy uh, or they won't make it. Yeah. You know, I never really thought about that because you, you sort of put the idea in my head that, uh, you know, in, in, and you look at, say, Fox now putting primetime Friday night WWF stuff up there, obviously WWF, excuse me, WWE, sorry, showing my age. It's almost even more leverageable, it seems, maybe, you know, from a rights issue. I never really sort of considered that that being sort of somewhat of a crown jewel of live linear television, not very many things aside from sports really holding that sort of model still together going forward. Uh, you wonder, you know, how that maybe becomes a lever, right? It's like, okay, you want you want SmackDown on Friday nights. Well, you know, give me a little love here. Let's put a couple of shekels against this is a XFL product too. I I'm curious if the, the the original XFL have any overhang when you were getting the UFL up up and running. Only in the sense that it was gimmicky football, and it was the exact opposite of what we wanted to do. We wanted legitimate football, and you know the NFL could say, well, look, we've got nine billion dollars worth of television contracts with the major players. We could set up our own developmental league and just have these leagues allocate networks allocate a hundred million bucks to this developmental league or 200 million bucks and we can have a developmental league. But the problem is it's going to be 200 million off of the 9 billion. They're not going to add more revenue. They're going to slice it from the package. And so 
I think the mistake the XFL is making that that the uh, leverage that McMahon has with WWE might somehow generate. He doesn't want to dilute the value of W because that's just more money out of his pocket. And so unless there are additive new revenues coming in from networks, it still doesn't work. Well, you don't think, though, that the NFL itself ultimately gets into its own developmental league kind of business? I mean, you look at what the NBA has done, right? I mean, you know, they kind of took the 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 charred remains of the, the Continental Basketball Association and kind of kind of built a better owned and operated kind of structure. And and I think somewhat, you know, brilliantly with, you know, uh, shall we say satellite teams in or, or at the edges of their actual home markets. It's a pretty interesting and compelling thing. And I, you know, maybe it's got years to play out to see if it de- indeed becomes an alternative to college for some or many. Um, I, but I, I don't know. Do you, what do you think? Do you think that, that it needs- Well, I've worked at the NFL. I know the individuals there. I speak with them all the time. They're celebrating their 100th season and they still don't have a developmental league. And there's no, there's no appetite for one. And after the World League of American Football, the owners made it abundantly clear to Tag Rebu and now Roger Goodell that there's no interest in doing that. And so they love that, you know, other entities like the XFL and the UFL try to come out hopefully in the spring and maybe give some guys some, some experience, but they're not putting a dime into it. I think the NFL owners are very content with what they have. Yeah. Cause it's a club, it's a billionaire boys yep. club and it's a, it's a very, and it continues to be a rarefied sort of uh, a group that, uh, that those who are outside of it uh, continue to lust after yep. i want to get into stories of say the usfl and certain presidents of the united states but you know i digress <laughs> to that all right here's one last question then and thank you this has been pretty awesome well, what were your thoughts about the aaf did you think it had a chance i didn't uh notably because i think you know it's the strategy from this with nbc was to create this sort of uh app where you could kind of call plays and predict plays. And to the extent you could predict plays well, you earned points. And what they ultimately hoped to do was to attract an audience that could draw uh, eyeballs to an app and then sell that as a product. And so it was never really intended to be a football product. It was a technology product. And I think it lost sight of how ineffective that was likely to be, how long it would take for that to develop, and not focusing truthfully on where they were as a football product. Uh, And then, you know, they didn't really have people who had started leagues. And so, and they had the son of, you know, uh, you know, one of the network presidents and and they had Bill Polian has obviously been very well connected in the NFL. But as you just said, the NFL and, startup leagues are a whole different ballgame. And so, you know, I just didn't see the credibility there that was going to give that. I didn't expect it to to not launch, you know, to decease in eight weeks or so. But I, I thought it had zero chance. I thought the XFL was certainly going to have a chance because they had the money and Oliver's got the knowledge and he's been in startup leagues and they hired a lot of our old people and people that have been around it. So they'll play a couple of seasons but I think they're going to have to sit back and look and say, okay, we've spent 350 million bucks. Uh, can anybody tell us how we're going to make any of that back? And I think eventually Vince McMahon asked those questions. 
Given the, de- the demise of, of, of all of those and, and arguably the question mark over the XFL, then uh, do, do you ever get the hankering to to jump back in uh, entrepreneurially or, or do you see if things yeah. could be done differently or are you kind of like you've sort of moved on career wise into? Uh, no, no. I mean, I'm a, I'm a lifer and uh, I still believe there's a product there that you could do. I know I could put the football talent together with the right people. I don't have any doubt we did that in the, in the, in the UFL. So I know that's there. I still think there's something to figuring out in the small markets, how you really engage the fans like we did in Omaha. If you can replicate that, then I think you can get a television market. Uh, and, and, and now you're not just so dependent on um, the networks. I mean, streaming and YouTube and a whole bunch of other Google and Apple TV there's so many other platforms and today. gambling to come, right? Exactly, exactly. And now gambling's becoming legalized, and gamblers love to take part in another league. So, so I think which has really driven the NFL's TV audience as well. So, so I think the climate now with technology and the way people can get games uh, and see them um, creates a whole another opportunity, maybe to to uh, uh, to generate revenue. All right. So, am I projecting here that 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 you're you're not done with some entrepreneurial uh, pursuits in and around either something like this or similar to it? Correct. And, and you're just gonna that, and you're just gonna leave it at that. You're not gonna. Yeah, I'm just gonna not, leave it at that. Okay. Well, all right. At least at least do some promotion around your book. Give us the name of the the, the title and stuff so people can find it because sure. uh, obviously a really good uh, insight and maybe some clues can be derived as to maybe what's next yeah. on your uh, your career agenda. Sure. Behind the line of scrimmage. Um, it's an inside look at the NFL. It's on uh, Amazon and books a million and uh, bookstores uh, around. I uh, go online again. It's behind the line of scrimmage uh, by Michael Zoot. Well, look, this is this is awesome. I uh, I I reserve the right to uh, you know send you a note once in a while just to sort of check in and see how you're doing and or sure. if we've jogged the memory for some other stories that maybe we just get, get, didn't get to because I I suspect that this will be a very interesting uh, episode for our, for our audience who just uh, lusts after uh, this kind of stuff and and look by all accounts. You know, I, I and I, in all the research that I've done, and I arguably could do a lot more. There is sort of a a, a bit of a glint of uh, of uh, remorse that the UFL uh, didn't have a longer chance, and the quality of play. Uh, you know, even even compared to some of the, the more recent debacles, the, the demise of the second version of the AFL, Arena Football League, and and the AAF, and who knows what happens with the XFL. You know, I, it's almost uh, arguably unsung, right? Uh, I think a bunch of yep. UFL stuff was. Is largely unsung, and 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 this is partially why we do some of these shows because, you know, this is all part of the tableau of history. And and as you rise again with some entrepreneurial effort t- uh, to be determined, wink, wink, nod, nod. Uh, <laughs> there is, uh, you know, these are uh, these are all part of the the bigger stories and stuff. And you know, you, you learn from mistakes and situations, and 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 uh, that's what makes uh, success all the more sweeter down the road. So I wish you nothing but the best, and I I, I appreciate your taking time. This is. Fascinating for me, and, and I, I'm suspectably fascinating for a lot of our listeners, for sure. Well, thank you so much. I enjoyed it, and I'm happy to come back anytime. All right, we thank Michael Hugh, who uh, cryptically there is uh, giving us a little bit of a, a hint that uh, maybe some more. Uh, professional football or professional sports uh, stuff to come from him. 
Uh, and we certainly uh, look forward to keeping in touch and finding out what uh, what is to come from uh, the world of Michael Hugh uh, in the uh, months ahead. Uh, in the interim, you can enjoy his autobiography uh, in his uh, life and times uh, in professional football, including the UFL, like we've discussed uh, over the last hour and change. Uh, the book is called Behind the Line of Scrimmage, Inside the Front Office of the NFL. And uh, it does include, for example, some things uh, from uh, his World League of American Football days, as well as, of course, a chapter or two on the United Football League experience uh, that uh, he shared with us. It is published by Center Street. And uh, perhaps the easiest place to uh, to find that book and purchase it uh, is, of course, by going to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode number 145 with Michael Hugh, and you'll find a link conveniently to the book uh, where you not only can uh, purchase and give us a few shekels, this book, but also uh, all the other books and, and media that we feature in all the previous episodes. And uh, just to click any of those links and it'll be, uh, take you to uh, Amazon or some other other place where you can make that purchase. And again, we'll get a couple of, uh, of nickels or dimes uh, that go into our coffers to keep our, our lights on and our uh, microphones hot and ready uh, for great conversations like this one that we just had with Michael. Let's see. Uh, before I uh, get into sort of our own promotional stuff, I want to tell you that uh, that clip that you heard at the beginning of the show uh, was from the old Versus Network, which is the predecessor uh, to what is now the NBC Sports uh, Network on cable. Uh, and that, of course, was Dave Sims and Doug Flutie calling the action for uh, that first ever UFL game uh, that was on Thursday, October 8th of 2009. Uh, and again, that was the Las Vegas Locos or Las Vegas Locomotives, depending on your perspective and uh, how much you'd had to drink that evening, uh, hosting the uh, California uh, Redwoods and the uh, Redwoods, of course, emerging victorious in that game at Sam Boyd Stadium, 30 to 17 in front of 18,187 rabid fans, curiously trying to figure out what this USFL, excuse me, UFL, there I go, football experience was going to be. All right, uh, let's see. I got that sort of uh, piece of uh, information out of the way, but uh, I remind you to please not only check out our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com to find out what's going on with the show, all the old episodes are there, uh, but also, of course, our social media feeds. Why don't you follow us on Instagram at goodseatsstillavailable? Perhaps you could follow us on Twitter. Why don't you at goodseatsstill? Uh, yeah, you can follow us on Facebook. Just search up Good Seats Still Available. You'll find a little page devoted to us there. You want to get our email newsletter? Well, make sure you go to the website and click around. You'll find that. We'll give you a little bit of a, a hint about what's going to come up in the uh, next week's uh, episodes. Uh, we'll uh, send that your way. We're happy to do that. And if you want to send us some email, go right ahead at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And if you forget that address, just find us uh, on the website there. You can find a convenient link there as well. Stay tuned for the rest of the year. I think we're going to try to get some Patreon stuff and some other goodies and some other promotions coming up your way. So please stay tuned for all that fun stuff. And we'll be uh, sure to share that with you. And uh, before we run, we want to say, of course, as we enter the new year uh, with health and prosperity, we hope uh, we want to say again, hello and welcome. And thank you to our friend Jerry Payne at Podfly Productions, who continues to put our pieces together each and every week in a, in a fine production fashion. And again, you can find out more about Podfly and all of their services at podfly.net. All right. I thank you tremendously for listening. We will see you next week. God knows what we'll be talking about, but we sure as hell hope it'll be fun and interesting like this week. And until then, we'll uh, we'll talk to you then. Bye. Bye.